morning. I love the enthusiasm. Great to see you this morning. Good to be in the house with you. It's exciting. It's always a great day to be alive in the ATX, isn't it? Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's a good day to be alive in Austin, Texas. Even if you're online, take some time and tell somebody at home or maybe in the coffee shop where you're watching. Let's join together and welcome in our online folks who are worshiping with us. Glad to have y'all. Glad to have y'all, and we look forward to seeing you back in the house with us. So we've saved you a seat and everything. You know, it is a great day to be alive in Austin, Texas, and there is a particular group of people who are really feeling this way. Now, for all of us, I think we would all agree that things just kind of feel better. Businesses are opening back up. Restaurants are back opening. School's going to be back open in the fall, and I know that's not really exciting, but that's exciting. Um... It's just, it just, it, it kind of feels like this summer is like the first warm day of spring after a long, cold winter. Doesn't it feel like that kind of like right now? But there's one group of people in Austin, Texas right now who are especially, especially loving life. I'm talking about people right now who are selling houses. If you're trying to sell a house in the 512 right now, you are sitting on top of the world. I mean, it's crazy in Austin. Houses are commonly, commonly being sold for tens of thousands of dollars above asking price. Now, the, the reasons for this seller's market are myriad. I mean, there's quality of life, low taxes, uh, the supply of houses versus the demand for houses, California, on and on and on and on, all the reasons go. But I think all of these reasons kind of stirred up and stewed together really come down to that age-old real estate adage, location, location, location. For a whole host of reasons, there are a lot of people in this world who feel like Austin, Texas is the place to be. And let's, get, let's just be honest, we understand that. When you travel and you go places, haven't you heard, had people tell you, like, you live in Austin? I've heard it is so cool. That's a cool town, right? And you're like, well, yes, I am. I mean, yes, it is. <laughs> location, location, location. Now, location, location, location does not only apply to residential real estate. Location, location, location has incredible weight and significance for spiritual real estate. The, the, the space that we occupy spiritually and mentally and emotionally and relationally, location, location, location has even greater, more far-reaching consequences spiritually than it does residentially or financially. And one of the ways that we increase our spiritual, spiritual real estate value is that we choose places spiritually and mentally and emotionally that are removed from sin. That the more choices we make to remove ourselves from sin or self-inflicted brokenness, the higher our spiritual real estate value is going to be. The more whole and well we are going to be. The founding father, Abraham, the founding father of 
Judaism, Christianity, and Islam understood and lived out this law of spiritual location, location, location over and over and over throughout his lifetime. But this spiritual real estate law comes into particularly sharp focus when you examine Abraham's relationship with his nephew, Lot. Now, Lot's an interesting cat. Lot was the son of Abraham's brother, Haran, and very early in the Abrahamic narrative, Lot throws in with Uncle Abraham. When God first called Abraham to leave his family and his place of origin and everything that he was familiar with, Lot and his family became part of this traveling tribe that Abraham's family became as they were moving toward the land that God would reveal to Abraham, but not yet. And you see this relationship grow and develop. Abraham and Lot become incredibly wealthy, the Bible says. Their, their, their herds and their, their flocks grew and expanded exponentially, so much so that one piece of land could not support both households. And so Lot's shepherds and herdsmen started kind of feuding and arguing with Abraham's shepherds and herdsmen, and they were fighting over water rights and grazing rights and all this kind of stuff. So Abraham, being the patriarch, kind of sees this coming family feud, and he says, let's don't do this. Lot, let's you and me split the family business so we can maintain the relationship. He says, you go one way, I'll go the other way, and as a matter of fact, I will give you the choice. The Bible says that when they make this, this business arrangement, this real estate deal, they're camped between the towns of Bethel and Ai, just a little bit north of Jerusalem. And Abraham tells Lot, he says, if you go west, I'll go east. If you go east, I'll go west. Your choice, young man. And the Bible says that Lot started to kind of look around at the landscape. And as he looked to the east in the Jordan River Plain, he saw that how fertile that ground was because it was so close to the Jordan River. And he looked over here towards Canaan and he was like, that looks a little rocky. That looks like the hill country in Texas. I'm going over here where my flocks can feed on this fertile green valley grass. And so that's exactly what happened. And even at this early stage in Genesis chapter 13, the Bible, the Bible is starting to give us just a little hint of the trouble to come. If you, if you got your Bibles, look in Genesis chapter 13. This is, this is how the Bible kind of sets up where we're going. In verse 12 and 13. So Abram, who his name had not yet been changed, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. Location, location, location. You see, what Lot was doing here, Lot, Lot chose a location because of the potential for financial and economic gain. He, he made a career move, moved his family, his children, his daughters, his sons, all of his herds into an area and completely ignored the spiritual, the emotional, the relational, the, the moral climate of the area he was moving into because he just saw dollar signs. And, and you see here this incredible pattern starting to emerge. You, you see you see this starting to happen. Now that's Genesis 13, and we kind of lose track of Lot until we get to Genesis 18, where we were last week, 
where God begins to deal with Abraham and, and he comes and he tells Abraham, you will have a son and through your son, Isaac, the entire world will be blessed. But I also have to tell you this, I'm about to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were towns on the plains that in this polytheistic culture, everybody else looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and went, don't be those guys. They, they were so depraved. They, they were so indifferent to any kind of a moral compass. They, they had become, like we said last week, Sodom and Gomorrah was kind of like Vegas and Miami on constant spring break. There, there was just no judgment, no values whatsoever. And in Genesis 19, we see this spiritual real estate law coming home to roost. And I think it's important for us to understand as we talk about this, when we talk about sin, I think it's really important. First of all, if you're new around here, this is not a church where we like to you know, scare the hell out of people. That's not our bag. That's not how we roll at all. But at the same time, we have to talk about it because here's the thing. Grace is only as amazing as it is because sin is as deadly as it is. If you don't understand the depravity and the gravity of sin, you can't fully appreciate grace. I think some of us maybe who grew up, and I did not, I was very blessed to grow up in a very healthy, God-honoring church, but sometimes if you grew up maybe under kind of some hellfire and brimstone preaching, man, that pendulum can swing way the other way and and I think as a general rule, most of us, I, I have to guard against this in my own life. Culturally speaking, we as a people generally are pretty soft on sin. I, I think we need to understand that God himself, the God who is love, hates sin. And, and so we're going to talk about sin today in the context of God's amazing grace. I think we need to come back to the place where we we claim the, the grace and the forgiveness and the redemption of Christ, and we drop at the foot of the cross our shame, our guilt, our sin. We, we receive that grace, but at the same time, we cultivate within our own lives, kind of, we, we cultivate in our own lives a hate for sin. That, that we, we come to a place where we hate what sin does. I, I think the best way that I can describe this is to give you a positive illustration of this negative reality. Y'all know, if you've been around here at all, you know that Julie and I have got two biological kids, Emily and Joe, but then we've got two bonus kids who've come into our family, Allie and Sylvie, two of the biggest blessings we've ever gotten. Well, two weeks from yesterday, Allie is getting married. Allie is marrying a guy by the name of Will the Thrill Sites. And Julie and I are beside ourselves. We love Will. He is a great guy. He is a committed Christ follower. He is incredibly smart. He works hard. He is driven. Um, he is super funny. He graduated from the University of Texas. God's hand is on this young man's life, okay? But let me tell you what I really like about Will. Here's what I really like about Will. Allie is most fully Allie when she's around Will. Will calls out of Allie all of the good stuff that God has put in her. 
I've seen Will celebrate her. He adores her. He will also challenge her and push back on the places where she needs to get better, like we all need in our lives. But man, he, he calls out the best in her. And I've never one time seen Allie shrink or diminish when she's around Will. He, he, he calls this out in her. Could I suggest to you today that sin is the anti-will? That, that sin diminishes us. Sin belittles us. Sin distorts the image of God that we were created and called to bear and carry in this world. And, and when you understand that that's what sin does, you start to, I think, understand the heart of our perfect heavenly father because he sees what sin does to his children. He sees what sin does to all of his creation and what he created that was good, sin twists, sin corrupts, sin distorts. And so it is entirely possible for us to have a healthy, God-honoring hatred of sin without feeling shame or guilt because of who Christ is, because of what Christ did for us on the cross, through the cross, and in the resurrection. And I think that's that, that if you want to call it a place, location, 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 that's where we need to be. That's, that's the spiritual real estate that we need to be occupying. If you've got your Bibles, look in Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis chapter 19, the Bible goes into this this spiritual real estate of Lot's life. Now, the story is about Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah have become kind of synonyms for sin itself, and it's easy to get lost in the, the narrative details of what happens at Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and we'll get into that, but I, I want us instead to focus on Lot, focus on, on the lesson of Lot, this real estate lesson that, that Lot gives us here. Genesis chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Remember, Genesis 13, Lot had, had decided he had moved his tents near Sodom. But in verse, chapter 19, look at what it says. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet. Be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Now, that, there's a really, really significant but subtle detail. Do, do you notice that in Genesis 13, Lot was out in the countryside near Sodom, but in Genesis 19, he's in Sodom. He's, he's moved residences. This, this location, location, location thing. He was comfortable being close to Sodom because, man, the fertile fields, but... After a while, he got comfortable being in the city of Sodom, sitting at the city gates, the place of honor in this day and age, the place where the city elders sat together and made decisions. Lot is now neck deep in Sodom. He is neck deep in it. And it's, it's here that I think we, we've got an opportunity to, to kind of step back for a second. And, and again, without being judgmental, make a judgment. You see, we have to choose, we have, we have to choose consistency over comfort. Consistency over comfort. 
Abraham did this over and over and not perfectly, but consistently. But Lot begins to choose comfort over consistency. He, he's moving farther and farther away from his family of origin, from, his, from the patriarch Abraham, his mentor, his guide in life. And he's moving closer and closer into the sin of Sodom. I, th I think when we're talking about choosing spiritual real estate, we, we've got to make some really, really informed decisions. We, we've got to understand the consequences of the choices that we're making. And that is exactly what Lot failed to do. Sometimes I think about all of the people who are moving to Austin. I, I think about, man, how many of them who are coming here don't yet know how much God loves them? How many of them who are coming here are coming here because of the prospect of financial gain, because of the prospect of, you know, possibly making things work where back home maybe they weren't? But are they really and truly coming with an understanding of what it means to be a part of this community? Because Lot moved into Sodom and failed to see the consequences of his choice. Now, you don't have to be moving homes to make a spiritual real estate decision that fails to see the consequences of your choice. As a matter of fact, most of the time when we make a spiritual real estate decision, we're not thinking about the consequences. We're, we're, we're thinking about what we feel like doing in the moment. And, and that's exactly what Lot was doing here. He was choosing comfort over consistency. Now, Lot comes to understand that these are angels sent by God, that they are in town, if you will, to inspect the city before God brings judgment on Sodom. And I have to say this also. When you hear about God bringing judgment, there, there's a part of that that kind of, we kind of push back against in the 21st century. Like, I don't like, I like the God of love and grace and, and, and rainbows. That, that tell, let's talk about that God. And, and he is the God of love and grace and rainbows. But he's also a God who judges. You see, God, God is holy. He is righteous, meaning there is no moral ambiguity in God's economy. He is morally perfect. And as such, he will not relax his moral standards and wink at our moral failings. Sometimes we like to think of God as just kind of a kindly old grandpa who's standing at the gates of heaven. And when we get there, he's going to be like, that's okay. Come on. Because <laughs> that's what grandpas do. That's not God. God is the judge who also gives grace. And so we have to have both of those in balance to understand who God is, how God operates. And there is judgment. There is such a thing as hell. There is such a thing as eternal separation from God. Now, there is also eternal fellowship with God. There is also forgiveness of sin. There is also heaven. There is also the life that is truly life that Jesus Christ 
died on the cross, rose again to facilitate, to make available for your life or mine. All of those things are real and true. And, and so it's, it's at this point that we choose our spiritual real estate. And, and, and this, is, this is the point that God was making here with Sodom and with Gomorrah. But to, to, to help frame just where Sodom and Gomorrah really are and where Lot has come to. Look at verses four through eight. And, and I'm gonna tell you right now, this passage of scripture is at the very least PG-13. So, but it's, it's real, it's biblical. This is what the Bible says. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded their house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Here's where Lot is. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish, but please leave these men alone for they are my guests and are under my protection. What? <laughs> what? I've got guests in my house, but you can have my daughters. In no, in no world is this okay. But this is where Lot had sunk to. And I think, you know, my, my first inclination when I read that, first of all, I kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit. It's just disgusting to think a father would even suggest that. Forget about what the men outside of Lot's house were shouting. But, but to understand the depravity of the area, to understand this is what Lot had surrounded himself with. These were the spiritual real estate decisions Lot had been making. And we're all capable of the same thing. No one, say no one. No one is immune from the consequences of sin, from, from gradualism. Well, we just, we, we moved near Sodom. We're not in Sodom. That's terrible over there. Well, I mean, you did have more economic opportunity over there in Sodom, so we, we got a little bit closer, but we're not, we're not like residents or anything. And just step by step by step by step. You see, when you're making these spiritual real estate decisions, we have to choose scripture over culture. Amen. Choose scripture over culture every single time. Listen, don't waste a second's time being angry at the world for being the world. This is where, this is where the world has always been going. This is what the world has always done. But when we choose scripture in making our spiritual real estate decisions instead of culture, we actually push back. We push back against the decay, against the rot of what we see going on around us. Carl Zimmerman was a Harvard sociologist. 
And Zimmerman studied cultures and societies across human history. And he came to some rather surprising conclusions for a Harvard sociologist. Zimmerman found that as cultures declined, as societies declined, like the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, name a culture, name a society, that there were some very real trends that occurred as they declined. And these are Zimmerman's findings. Number one, in societies in decline, marriage loses its sacredness, divorce becomes commonplace, and alternative forms of marriage are celebrated. There is a rise of feminism as power over men versus a celebration of both genders. There's disrespect for parents and authority increasing and delinquency and promiscuity becomes more commonplace. Adultery is celebrated. People who break their marriage vows are admired. And there is an increased acceptance of sex outside of marriage with an increase in sex-related violence. Sodom and Gomorrah, the Greeks, the Romans, history. This is what happens when people choose culture over scripture every single time. I don't celebrate that. It breaks my heart to see a lot of these realities playing out in the world you and I inhabit. But this is real. This is beyond debate. This is what happens when we see cultures, we see families break down, become what sociologists refer to as atomistic families. Adam, like, like a family is made up of atoms, like a molecule. And they just kind of interact, but then they go their own way and do their own thing. That's not a scriptural view of family. A scriptural view of family is interactive, founding father and mother, equipping, training children, teaching them what the Bible says and why it's in there and how their lives work better when they choose scripture over culture. This is the grace and the goodness of God at work for humanity. And so we choose scripture over culture. Poor Lot. I mean, he was just, he was so, so deceived. Genesis 19, 14. Lot begins to kind of clue into what's fixing to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he goes to warn his daughters and their fiancés. Verse, verse 14, Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it, but the young men thought he was only joking. Isn't that, can you imagine as a father, as a dad, like you, you've clued in, like it, it's late, but you've clued in and you're trying to tell your kids, come on, let's, let's get out of here. And they look at you and go, that's hilarious. That's your dad being dad. It's a dad joke. The judgment of God is a dad joke. 
Lot had forfeited his authority in the home. His, his daughter's fiancés laughed when he talked about the judgment of God. They laughed at the things of God. It's heartbreaking when you read this. But, but there's, a, there's a lesson here as well for us to choose careful over callous. Choose careful over callous. Don't, don't become so jaded, so calloused to the world around us that we laugh at things that are not of God. That we tell jokes, we pay for movies, we listen to songs that are so counter to a godly life, to, to godly spiritual real estate. Location, location, location. But there's still hope. There's still hope. Lot and his family begin to leave Sodom as the judgment of God comes in. I'm gonna read verse 17 and then 24 through 26. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Verse 24. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and the villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Well, this is just a feel-good sermon all the way down, isn't it? Never forget that the judgment of God is always just. It's always fair. If God issues judgment, it is never done in anger. How many of you are parents? Let me see you show of hands if you're a mom or a dad. Anybody ever like impose sanctions on your children in anger? You're grounded for life. You can get a driver's license when you're 30. You know what I'm talking about? God doesn't do that. God always, the, the Bible says that God is slow and patient, wanting no one to perish, but all, all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. So when he finally does judge, you can know that he's been fair. He's been just. He's been kind. And so there's this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's wife, you just want to, at the end of this chapter, you're just like, Mrs. Lot, you had one job. Run and don't look back. But I got to tell you, I understand that. Have you, ever, have you ever felt like God was leading you away from something or someone and it was gonna be hard to, to do what God was calling you to do? Maybe to, to break up with someone, maybe to leave a business relationship because of their ethics and integrity. And you're like, yeah, but I mean, they, they pay good. Lot's wife 
See, the, the lesson here is that we have to choose God's leading over what we're leaving. Choose God's leading over what we're leaving. If God calls you to leave something behind, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's because he's got something better ahead. And, and I would love to tell you this was the end of the story. But, but there's an even more sordid end to the narrative of Lot's life that we're given biblically. His daughters begin to panic. They look around after Sodom and Gomorrah has been completely demolished and they say, we will be childless. And so they begin to scheme to get their father drunk to impregnate them so that they will have children. Again, you're just like, well, I, I can't unsee that. Why would they put that in the Bible? <laughs> and so one daughter gets her father drunk, has sexual relations with him, and becomes pregnant. The next daughter, the next night, gets him drunk again. The Bible says he was so drunk, he didn't even realize when he was lying down or getting up. He didn't know what was going on. Which, by the way, Lot bears responsibility in that as well. I'm not minimizing that. The Bible doesn't minimize that. But what's fascinating is the consequences that this spiritual real estate decision had, not just for their family immediately, not even for, for generations, but literally for centuries after them. Here's what the Bible says. This is Genesis 19, 36 through 38. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. I'm sorry. I wish I didn't have to read that to you, but it's in the Bible. When the oldest daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. Moab, which means from father. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Ben-Ami, which means son of my kinsman. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites were a thorn in the flesh of Israel for centuries. 500 years later, Joshua is leading Israel into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. And who is creating the most problem for them? The Moabites and the Ammonites over and over and over again like a bunch of termites. We have, we have to understand the weight of the spiritual choices in real estate that we make. We have to understand that we must choose legacy over luxury. Choose legacy over luxury. Invest in the next generation in your household. In order for you to teach your children what God's word says, you have to know God's word. In order for you to teach them why God's word says that, you have to spiritually metabolize the word of God. In order for you to make the right spiritual real estate decisions, location, 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 
you have to develop a hatred of sin. You, you have to be able to step back and go, it's, it's not just that God will get mad at me. It's that this wrecks lives. This damages relationships. This distorts the image of God that I was created to carry. And so I'm not going to settle for that. And, and listen, I understand. Sometimes, maybe a lot of times, at least for a season, sin is fun. I know that. It never lasts. It never lasts. It always corrupts, distorts, diminishes, belittles. Remember, sin is the anti-will. Location, location, location. That's why we say that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Some of us can afford bigger houses than others of us. That's you, great, knock yourself out. But the real estate at the foot of the cross has already been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. You can't buy that, you can't earn that. That's how amazing grace really is. I know sin is heavy, I get it. But I think it's important for us to have a healthy, biblical view of sin so that we can live in the amazing grace of God. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're in this room or online and you've never personally and definitively chosen to accept the grace of God, the forgiveness of God available only in Christ. We want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. To begin a relationship with Christ. Just pray in your own words something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin. I know I have chosen spiritual real estate. That has led to brokenness. And so I ask for your grace to heal that brokenness, to forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose from the dead for me. And I accept. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I have. I pray this prayer in your name. 
want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. But if that was your prayer, as a church, we want to help with what comes next. First of all, we're, we're so excited for you. We, we're thrilled for you. And so as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment more, would you just raise your hand? If that was your prayer, raise your hand. If you're online, you can raise your hand by just typing in the comments there. But your hand in the air is just a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And so as a church, we honor that. We celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is that you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.